0: Thank you for listening to this message from Resurrection Life Church in Granville, Michigan. As you know, we're in a series of messages we've entitled I Believe, and we're going through and unpacking the Apostles' Creed. Now, for those of you who don't know, it is the oldest creed in Christendom. Um, I was just reading this week, Dr. William Barclay, who's a great scholar, he said that actually from the year 100, we had the basic Apostles' Creed that we have today. And that is about the time that the Apostle John died. It's the oldest creed in Christendom. And literally billions and billions and billions of Christians have made this confession. In fact, in the second century, it was referred to as the rule of faith. And when you wanted to be water baptized, this was the confession, the Apostles' Creed. You would make that confession and be water baptized. Now, it's important because it says in Jude, the third verse, it says to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, what that is saying is that what Christians believed in the first century is what Christians are supposed to believe in the 21st century. There's supposed to be no difference. The faith, what Christians believe, was given once for all. First century, 21st century, the same. But here's what we find today in our society. Again, we are living in this individualistic society. The most individualistic the world has ever seen, right, is Western culture. And we want to decide for ourselves, right? And so people come at, at spirituality like they go to a smorgasbord, right? And they go, I like the chicken fingers. I don't like broccoli. So I'll take the chicken fingers and leave the broccoli. All right. And so what people do with Christianity is, they say, well, I like this part and I like this part, but I don't like that. And so I'm going to take this, but I'm not going to take that. But what you end up with is not Christianity. Right? You end up with something that you concocted. All right. And, and let me just say, you end up with religion. Now, listen, religion is always Man reaching to God, trying to get God's approval, right? But what Christianity is, is Christianity is not man-initiated. Christianity is God-initiated. It's for God so loved the world that he gave, right? It's not man trying to please God. It's God reaching down and saying, here's what you need, and I'm supplying it, right? And there's a huge, huge difference. Romans 3.20 says it like this. In different translations say a little different. One translation says by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Another translation says by being a good person, no one has ever been made right with God. You don't get right with God by being a good person. You get right with God through what he did for you. For God so loved that he gave. It's God initiated and we respond to what God has done. But through the centuries and literally the millennium, right, billions of Christians have made this confession. And uh, we are beginning each one of our sessions as we're going through here, confessing the Apostles' Creed together. So if we can get the words up on the screen, here we go. Let's repeat it together. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the whole universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. All right. Well, we are talking about conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We've been looking at that phrase. Now, Christianity has its foundation in two supernatural events. The first being the incarnation, God becoming flesh, Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. The second being the resurrection from the dead, right? Without both of them, Christianity simply ceases to exist. Right. It, it becomes no more than a philosophy, no more than a moral code. Right? And you, you'll have people say, yeah, well, Jesus, he was a good teacher. Well, that's really kind of funny right? because they don't like what he taught, number one. Right? And secondly, he either is who he said he is, the son of God who came to redeem us, or he's a liar or he's crazy. And neither of those are very good. Right. But what we believe is that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is God speaking to us and that it is true. That all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine to prove correction and instruction in righteousness. And it gives us the authority for our lives. How we live, what we believe, the moral decisions that we make. Now we're talking about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, it reads this way. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, for the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I don't know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One that is to be born will be called the Son of God. And Matthew wrote this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. And again, we mentioned that the virgin birth is one of the foundations of Christianity. God putting on a suit of humanity and coming down. Now, the reason for that is found all the way back in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are in this beautiful garden. Satan comes and tempts them. Now, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them and put in them everything he wanted for all of humanity. But when they bowed their knee and sinned, bowed their knee to Satan, something happened on the inside of them. The part of them that connected with God, we can say it went dormant. You can say that it died. But that part of them just ceased to function. right? And literally something came on the inside. In Romans 5 it says, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, Death, sickness, disease, war, famine, pestilence, prejudice, you name the sin, it came into the world. It came into their, their being, so to speak. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, that the law of sin abides in my members. In Romans 7, Paul is saying, you know, I want to do right, but the right that I want to do, I don't do. And the wrong that I don't want to do, I do. Anybody ever experience that? And he says, what's happening is there is something inside me, in my members, in my physical body. He says, there is the law of sin. There is this tendency to keep on doing wrong, to keep doing wrong, to keep doing wrong. Where did it come in? It came from Adam. When Adam fell, it came into his life. And he passed it on from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. And so what we needed, we needed another Adam. Adam. We need another one that God put everything in and it was never contaminated. In fact, your whole Bible, listen, is written about two people and their families and both of them have the same name. Not that your whole Bible is about two people in their family, how people are connected to them and both of them have the same name. You find it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being or a living soul. The first man, Adam, lived in the garden, married to a girl named Eve. But then it says the last Adam. There was a second Adam. You know him as Jesus. But the Bible calls him the last Adam, that he was a life-giving spirit. It says the first Adam was of the earth made of dust. The second man was the Lord from heaven. Jesus is the last Adam. The first Adam represented us in everything that he did and got us into trouble. I like to say it this way. Way, the first Adam got us into trouble by eating the fruit from a tree. But the last Adam got us out of trouble hanging on a tree, paying for your sins and my sins. And that is good news. But really the whole Bible is written about our connection to either the first Adam or the last Adam. And the last Adam had to come and he had to not have the law of sin that every person had. He had to be disconnected from the first Adam who passed what he had done down to all men. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, Mary is to be honored among all Christians. In fact, the angel said to her, that she would be honored. And Mary herself said this in Matthew, Excuse me, in Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. We are supposed to call Mary blessed. All right? Now, we're to call her blessed. Now, in the Protestant, how would we say this? arm of the church we find that we tend to ignore Mary but the Bible says we're to call her blessed right we're to honor her but what we're not to do is to worship her you see there's a certain arm of the church that says that Mary was sinless and never sinned but what she said she said my spirit rejoices in God my savior you know who needs a savior sinners need a savior And she recognized that she wasn't sinless. She recognized she needed a Savior. Are we to honor her? Yes. Are we to bless her? Yes. Are we to worship her? No. Right? She, just like everyone else, needed a Savior. So we bless her. We honor her. But we don't worship her and we don't pray to her. Somebody says, well, why not? Well, it says in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's how many mediators? One. Jesus is that mediator. That's why we come to the Father in Jesus' name. There is not another mediator. Now, the Apostles' Creed continues and said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, Pontius Pilate was governor, we would probably refer to as a governor today, from 26. AD to 35 AD. And the Jewish people, particularly their leaders, they brought Jesus to Pilate because they were not permitted to use capital punishment and they wanted Jesus to die. Now, when he came before Pilate, it was very obvious to Pilate that he was not an ordinary criminal. There was no cringing. He wasn't panic stricken. He wasn't pleading for mercy. He was calm, serene, regal, He looked more like the judge than the defendant. But Pilate knew that Jesus was not guilty, right? But he ultimately caved under political pressure, right? His wife had a dream and sent him this message, right? Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. He had that operation. First he knew in his heart. Then his wife sent him a message. He didn't want to make the call, so he sent Jesus to Herod, the local king, of the, and he sent him back. He was hoping that he wouldn't have to make the call. So then he said, "You know what? It's the Passover time, and I'm supposed to release a prisoner for you. Would you like me to release Jesus?" And they said, "No, we want Barabbas, who was a criminal who had committed murder in an insurrection." Now he may have wanted to do justice, and he may have set out to follow principle. Over prejudice. And he could even say, Well, I just wanted to do what was right for the citizens of Jerusalem, right? But Pilate, because he was afraid to do right, he did wrong. He was afraid if he would let Jesus go, it would be political suicide. And so people say, Well, he's at fault. He delivered Jesus up to be crucified. But the Bible says in Romans 4 25, who, speaking of Jesus, was delivered up because of our offenses. The reason Jesus went to the cross was not because Pilate was negligent, not because the crowd cried crucify him. The reason he went to the cross was because of your offenses and my offenses. That's why he went to the cross. (laughs) Revelation 13 talks of Jesus as of a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God, you, you might say that he can cheat, but it's not really cheating when you're God. But you don't know what's going to happen next week. But you know what? God can look ahead and see. And before God even created the earth, he looked ahead and he saw that he was going to have to send Jesus to redeem us. He was as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was God's hidden plan. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. When it's talking here about the rulers of this age, it's talking about Satan and demon power. It said they did not understand that it was God's plan to send Jesus to the cross. Hebrews two fourteen says that the children partook of flesh and blood, so he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he, Jesus, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan did not realize that God's plan to strip Satan of his authority, to pay for your sin and my sin, was to put on a suit of humanity to come down, to die on a cross in your place, in my place, and by doing so, defeat the devil and conquer death, sin, and the grave. That was God's plan. The devil did not know. So Pilate washed his hands and said, go ahead, you take him, and crucified him. And they took him out, and they came to the place called Calvary, otherwise called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And above his head, Pilate had written in three languages, the king, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The accusation against you, the 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 crime you had committed would be put above your head. So passers by would knew what you had done. And above his head it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And if you had been there, that's what you would have seen. But I want you to understand this: there was much, much more that was happening. Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's like taking a picture with your iPhone. You see, what you see is what you get. If you take your iPhone out and take a picture of my foot, you see a black shoes, black socks, black pants. That's it. But if you get an x-ray camera and take the same picture, how many of you know what you're going to see is totally different? It's totally different. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are like your iPhone. But the epistles, now they are letters that were written to the churches that had been started. And in those letters, what we do is God gives us an x-ray picture. We see into the spirit realm what happened, what God saw happen that day. Now, you and I live in the natural realm. But realize this, this natural realm was created by the spiritual realm. Right? The spiritual realm is actually more real than the natural realm. We usually don't think about it, but even in the typical wedding ceremony, The wedding ceremony starts out like this. Dearly beloved, we're gathered together here in the presence of God and his holy angels to join in holy matrimony, this man and this woman. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? That's how we start. And notice what we say. The presence of God and his holy angels. You know, if God were to open your eyes right now and you could see into the spirit realm, you would see this place full of angels. Jesus talked about little children. He said, they're angels. They're angels. Children have angels. And by the way, you don't lose your angel when you turn 12 or 18 or 35. All right? You've got an angel that watches out over you. All right? So God did something that day that if you would have been there and you could have seen into the spiritual realm, you would have seen more than what Pilate put on that cross. The Bible says in Colossians 2 that God came to that cross. Listen. Listen. "...having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he, God, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." You say, what is that about? Well, the handwriting of requirements. That's what it's about. You say, what's that? Well, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and God's up there, and he spends 40 days with God. And the Bible says that God took his finger and he wrote... God wrote. Those are the handwriting, all right? Yeah, we, we sometimes just talk about the Ten Commandments. How many of you heard of them? All right. right. But actually, there's a bunch more. Right? If, if you actually ask any Orthodox Jew, they will tell you there are 613 commandments. Now, some of them are ritual commandments. They have to do with washings and sacrifices, and others are moral commandments, all right? But God took the list of all the sins that you could ever commit. Everything you've ever thought of and some you haven't even, I hope you haven't even thought of. But God had the list, all of them, all right? Lying, cheat, steal, adultery, anger, drug abuse, pedophilia, alcohol abuse, hate, unforgiveness, all sorts of sexual sins, murder, prejudice, abortion, lust, unforgiveness. God took the list of every every single sin, and he came down in the Spirit, and he nailed it to Jesus' cross and said, he is dying and paying for every one of these sins. Now, again, Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, He was raised when you were justified. Literally, what it means is the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is proof that every sin is 100% completely paid for. That is great news. Great news. Crucifixion was the worst death that anyone could die. No Roman citizen, no matter what they did, could be crucified. It was painful, humiliating, and agonizing, agonizing death. But what happened at that cross, God put all of your and my sin upon Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he took his righteousness and made it available to us. Now, particularly the first century and into the second century, most of the preaching that was done was done to Jewish people. Right? And the, the early Christians, they're, they're one of their, their main arguments about Jesus being the Messiah was they would go back into the Old Testament and show pictures of Jesus. And the favorite one, by the way, was with Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Now, for years, Abraham and Sarah have been married. Over 50 years, no children. No children. And Abraham is serving God. He's continually worshiping. He's building altars to the Lord. But finally, when he's 100 years old, he has a child, Isaac, and he goes crazy over this kid. Right? This kid is spoiled, rotten. All right? Now, I remember somebody, somebody said to our daughter, Stephanie, you know, we had three boys and then a girl and said, you're spoiled. And she says, no, I'm not because I'm thankful. I thought that's good. I like that. But he kind of like spoiled this kid. And one day God came to Abraham And said to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to go to Mount Moriah. And on that mountain, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. He gets up the next morning, takes a three-day journey, goes to Mount Moriah and climbs up on that mountain, the place that God had told him. He built an altar there, placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, don't lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I know now that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called, on the, called the name of the place. The Lord will provide Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it, the sacrifice, will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I've sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing, haven't withheld your son, your only son. and blessing I'll bless you. And multiplying, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, the sand of the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now, we know where Abraham went. It went to Mount Moriah. And you can go to the spot today. We were just there a couple months ago. We've got a picture right here. If you were to go today, that right underneath that gold dome, now that's sitting on the Temple Mount, by the way. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Right underneath that dome is the place where Abraham was going to kill his son. Christians believe that. Jewish people believe that. Um, followers of Islam believe that. Everybody believes it. It's that, that is the spot right there. Right? Now that is sitting on the Temple Mount, which is about 35, maybe a little more, maybe up to 40 acres is the Temple Mount. It's right in that same spot where years later, a thousand years later, by the way, David comes and makes a sacrifice. And he, he makes a sacrifice to stop a plague that is about to hit the city of Jerusalem. And then it's in that same spot where a few years later, David's son Solomon builds the temple. It's the same spot, right? You can see it. Now, right now, if you you would be standing on the Mount of Olives and you'd be looking back. Now we're back on the Temple Mount and we're looking to the east and what you see there, the trees, those are the Mount, that's the Mount of Olives. Now, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, I'm thinking it's a quarter mile away. Maybe it's a little bit more. This is the road you'd walk down. and You'd come to the foot of the Mount of Olives. And when you get there, you'll see a place that's called Calvary or Golgotha or the place of the skull. Right? That's what it looked like up until about two months ago. Right? You can still see the eyes, the nose, the mouth. A piece of it just fell off two months ago. So you go now and it's a little bit harder to see. But that's what it looked like up until about two months ago. And Jesus is crucified right at the base of that spot right there. That was where he was crucified. The garden Tomb's just a couple hundred yards, maybe 300 yards off. Right? So Abraham is up there. And God speaks to him and says, don't sacrifice your son. And he said, Jehovah Jireh, in this mountain, it, literally, the sacrifice will be provided. And 2,000 years later... God sent his only son and he went to that same spot and he was sacrificed for your sin and my sin. Now, we don't know this for sure, but many Bible scholars believe this because of what Jesus said. Jesus said this in John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He said, Abraham saw my day, saw Jesus' day. What's Jesus' day? Jesus' day, Jesus' purpose was to come and die at Calvary. And many Bible scholars, believe, if Abraham, in fact, when you're standing there today, if you were to knock out that wall, you could look right down and you could see Golgotha. From where Abraham was standing, he could look and see the spot where Jesus was going to be crucified. And many scholars believe because of what Jesus said that God gave Abraham a vision that day. And he saw a cross, and he saw a son on that cross who died to pay for your sins and my sins. And he died so that Abraham's son would not have to die. And he didn't just die so Abraham's son wouldn't have to die. He died so you wouldn't have to die, and I wouldn't have to die, because the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and he was buried. But what he did, he did for you and he did for me. Would you please bow your heads? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. You know, the lie of the devil is that you've done so much. You've done things that have separated you from God, that have created this rift in between you and God, and you cannot get to God. But listen, nothing you could ever do would make God love you more, and nothing you could ever do would make him love you less, because God is love. The Bible said that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants to forgive you. He wants you to become a part of his family. And if you're away from God, you are not here by accident. You're here because God is drawing you to himself. And he wants you to respond to his love. It is not enough that he just loves you. You need to receive that love. You say, what do I need to do? Two things. Turn your back on your old life and stop living to please yourself and begin to live for the one who loved you, died for you, rose again, and paid for your sin. Secondly, you need to receive him. The Bible says to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. It is not enough that you know about Jesus. You need to receive him. You need to live for him. And what is he going to do? He said, I've come that you may have life. And that you can have it abundantly. He wants to give you an abundant life. He said, The thief, the devil, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Why anyone would serve him one more day, I do not know. Now, if you need to get right with God, you're away from the Lord, or you don't know where you stand with God, this is for you. I'm going to count to three. When I say three, please lift your hand. We're going to pray together. God will meet you right here in this place. And when you leave, you will be forgiven. Right with God, be on your way to heaven. Again, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Your way will not get you to God. My way won't get me to God. For more information about Res Life, please visit our website at reslife.org. If you have questions about Res Life or would like directions to visit us, please feel free to call 616-534-4923.